Welcome to High Times Dark Crimes. I'm Chris. And I'm Nat. And today, I'm taking over. I'm left out. Oh my goodness. And I'm the one that's been up all night. (laughs) So there are a lot of things in this script that I have left out-ish, not because of any particular reason besides there's so much information and a lot of it is like, some say this, some say this, some say this. So I chose kind of the most prominent information. Okay. Okay. So trigger warnings today, Chris, is going to be kind of rough, not in our usual way, kind of rough. So we're looking at rape, murder, abuse, neglect, and mutilation all of which have to do with children. So, I mean, we've kind of covered that before. Yes, but not this way. Okay. It's going to be good. So, those of you who are sensitive to child cases in general should really skip this episode. Like, I really press, please skip this episode. It's very not good. Because we're going to be talking about Mary Bell, the Tyneside Strangler. Oh, mm-hmm. I actually don't know this one. I'm so excited. We start in the suburbs of Newcastle, upon Teen in northeast England. The district was known as Scotswood, a place of pure stricken poverty. Those within this area were known by the police who frequented it. They were criminals, sex workers, and those just generally down on their luck with nowhere to go. This sounds like every other story we've done so far. All right. You know, and it's, you're not wrong. The intro is very similar. Oh, really? Something happened to a homeless person and a a sex worker? Shocker! Oh my goodness! (laughs) So, our story specifically takes place here, May 1857. Wait, I thought it was 1957. Yep, it's 1957. 1857 was way cooler. 1857. Newcastle. (laughs) We have a beer named after us. (laughs) It's not the nice Newcastle. It's the slum Newcastle. Uh-oh. Nah, it's like the shitty beer. <laughs> Newcastle light. <laughs> so our story starts with Betty Bell, a sex worker known for her more uh, unique offerings, which we'll get into later. Was she into poop play? No, thank oh, goodness. God. That was not a warning. <laughs> not into scats. No. <laughs> <laughs> She found herself giving birth at age 17 to her first child, Mary Bell. Usually a joyous occasion, but, you know, this is true crime. So the first thing that she said when her child was given to her was, take that thing away from me. Oh. Mother of the year. Yeah. But she was 17. And something I didn't really write about, but Betty Bell's story is kind of tragic. She was loved, and then some stuff happened to her. She got in with the wrong people. By 14, she was in the sex world. So Mary's entrance into this new dismal world was speckled with Betty's disdain for her. Coupled with the absence of her father, who we assume to be Billy Bell, which is one of her common suitors, um, he was known to be a petty criminal, a drunkard, and some of the resources said he, like, robbed a bank at gunpoint, but as hearsay. It wasn't uncommon for kids in this area to be left to fend for themselves, and in fact, Mary came to prefer it when her mother left on quote-unquote business trips to Glasgow. It meant she could have some moments of peace. So, Betty was a sex worker who specialized in a few specific categories. Sadomasochism, 
whippings, and strangulation. All of which she practiced regularly in her home. This was in 1957? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Dang. I know. And she's 17? Mm-hmm. That's a lot to take on as a 17-year-old. I know. When 17, I was like... <laughs> I was like, I've had sex and it was terrible. I don't even <laughs> care to do that again. <laughs> I, <laughs> I lived in a small town working on a goat farm and I don't think I really understood sex yet. <laughs> no, I mean, I was very sheltered. Like my eight-year-old daughter has a much more better concept of relationships and sex and how Good. they work than I ever would have. Good. I still am upset I never got the birds and the bees talk and I figured it out through a comic online. <laughs> <laughs> not how you should teach your kids sex ed <laughs> oh my goodness i mean my sex talk was don't have sex or you'll die no no no. it was just don't have sex and then you'll never be able to trust men and then i lost my virginity to a guy that never ended up calling me back but a really small penis so oh, that is a tragic first time yeah Wow. Yeah, it wasn't great. I also stopped it before it happened because I was like, hey, do you have a condom? Because, like, I should be smart about this. He's like, no. And I made him drive to the grocery or to, no, the gas station to go get some because I was like, yeah. And then it was just terrible anyway. Oh, my gosh. So if anyone is young and they're listening to this, don't have sex before 18. It's not worth it. Mm-mm. It's just dumb. Yeah. Wait until you find someone that's got some experience. <laughs> And where's a condom? That's so gross. <laughs> Men are so gross. I'm so glad I'm a lesbian. <laughs> you definitely don't have to worry about penis size. No. No. So, Mary, like several of the people we've talked about, was able to witness these sexual exchanges pretty consistently through her childhood. And unfortunately, by age four, Betty began to offer her child to her clients. Oh. Yeah. It was almost the only way Betty could find a use for her child. Almost. So, there are some speculations that Betty suffered from a condition where she needed attention, and the best way to get attention was to cause suffering to her child, because then her family would come. (laughs) See... (laughs) <laughs> I don't understand. This is such an odd concept. I know. But she was like 17. Now, I guess she's in her 20s, but still. I just... Something's I broken. Understand. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want any attention. <laughs> like, I'm good. I'm ready to sleep now. <laughs> so, Mary was victim to many quote-unquote accidents as she grew up. She nearly fell from a second-story window around age two, but was saved by her ankles, thanks to her good uncle. Um, I am going to be leaving out the names of the family members because they were all really nice and don't deserve publicity, like, in the way that true crime does. (laughs) Oh, yeah. So, I'm just going to kind of refer to them as the uncle and aunt. They were really nice people. Um, Supposedly, Betty was holding her by the window and, oops, slipped. (laughs) So... That's speculation. Goodness. Uh, Mary got into a locked away, hidden stash of sleeping pills from her grandmother, and she downed a crap ton of them on several occasions. And this is like lock and key hidden away. Um, Only once did she have to be rushed to the hospital and to get her stomach pumped with 
that, while she was there, she told the nurse that her mother had been giving her Smarties. How is she not in jail? I don't know. I don't know. I didn't include it, but there is an interview with Betty Bell on everything with Mary Bell, and I I couldn't watch it for more than like a couple seconds because she just doesn't look at the camera, doesn't look at the interviewer, stares into space, and she's like, yep, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. She just seems completely out of tune with everything. Kind of feel bad for her, but huh. I, yeah. So at an early age, Mary did become a chronic bedwetter, as we've seen in our previous cases, likely due to her many traumas. Betty despised her for it and any time it happened she would take mary's face and press it into the mattress before hanging the sheets for all to see uh though betty was cruel and unforgiving mary's aunt and uncle just loved her they doted upon her and would often found caring for her when betty just wouldn't however when they finally asked to adopt mary because they actually liked her betty was like "Uh, uh-uh, no way and took her away from them for two weeks and then she needed a babysitter, so she went back to the uncle and aunt. She sounds responsible. She does. She really is, because she did end up giving Mary to a stranger. She brought little Mary to an adoption clinic and ran to, into just some random woman who was leaving. She was in tears, sobbing because they had denied her request to adopt. And so Betty was like, hey, you want to adopt a child? Here's my kid. Have at it. And so... The only reason Mary was returned was because Betty's sister had followed her, knowing she was up to no good, and was able to get Mary back. Oh, man. I'm guessing Mary should have stayed with that woman. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So, the streets quickly became Mary's playground, as they were for many of the children in Scottswood. By age two and up, most kids were out playing in abandoned buildings and alleyways till late into the night. Mary did make friends with another five-year-old girl when she was still about four. The girl lived on the same street, but unfortunately, just as the two became close, she was hit by a bus right in front of Mary. Jesus. Mm -hmm. Needless to say, Mary's life was just general a living hell by four. Despite all the trauma, though, she was growing up very intelligent. She was striking with her short dark hair and piercing blue eyes, and she definitely made a statement with anyone that came in contact with her. In school, she just performed really well, but the difficulty came out when she was on the playground. She would be playing and happy one moment and violently aggressive the next. Pauline, a girl that went to the same school as Mary, witnessed this event several times, including firsthand. She said that Mary's head would begin to shake when she got really angry, and then suddenly she would just grab your throat. Once, she even put out a lit cigarette on another kid's face. And nothing came of it. How old was she, and why does she have this at school? Uh, she, at this point, she's between about six and ten. Oh. Mm-hmm. That's the appropriate time to start giving children cigarettes. Yeah, that's what I think so. Yeah. They need something to suck on other than their thumb, so. (laughs) So, the teachers were, of course, aware of this behavior, because how can you not? But they couldn't do anything about it. They lived in the slums, and police had better things to do, like deal with domestic disputes and stuff. For Mary, this was just kind of normal. She had witnessed it all growing up, and these violent outbursts were just a part of her daily life. With her previous friend gone, however, Mary sought after a new playmate. Her next-door neighbor, Norma Bell. No relation. They just have the same last name. She doesn't get hit by a bus, does she? No. Not by a car. No. Okay, good. She is normal. 
Oh, <laughs> see, see what I did there. I mean, the other kid was probably normal too. He yeah, just got hit by a bus. <laughs> oh my gosh! So Norma was a quieter girl, a follower for certain. She was about two years older than Mary, but not nearly as well educated, and seeming to struggle with some type of learning disability at a very young age, which made her really easy to manipulate. The duo became unstoppable, casting fear onto the playground. This is where things started to get a little out of hand. 1968. Mary and Norma went out to play with a local three-year-old. At this time, uh, Norma was about 13, Mary just before turning 11. They promised him sweets as they led him off to who knows where, and later the boy was found wandering the streets at night, dazed, confused, and bleeding, alone. Nothing came of it, no reports were made, and it was a simple spark that led to the fire that followed. We follow Pauline again, coming back. Pauline, Norma, and Mary were playing in the sandpit one day. For one reason or another, Mary ordered Norma to hold the girl down. Then, she violently began to strangle her. Pauline tried to fight back, but as she did, Mary began to shovel sand into her mouth. She stuffed her fingers so far down her throat as if to force the sand as far as it could go. But this change in violence scared Norma. So she did end up letting Pauline go, and Pauline did report to the police, but only about the strangulation. She was too scared of Mary to report anything else. Even still, strangulation's a big deal, but the police didn't do anything. Can I interject? <laughs> yes. We're, we're in Europe. Yes. Okay. I'm trying to find a better way to put it than what it is in my head. I can't see color right now because you're just telling me a story. Is she white or is she... Oh, I don't know. Oh. oh. Uh, pictures, she's white. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. I was wondering if this was a minority or oh. minority heavy area and that's why it was getting ignored. No, they're all seemingly white. No, oh, it's just the U.S. that has a terrible problem. <laughs> <laughs> Surprise. Oh, yay. So proud. Finally came the first tragedy. May 25th, 1968, a handful of days after Pauline's incident and a day before Mary's 11th birthday. A local boy, Martin Brown, was only four years old at the time. He was blonde, blue-eyed, and bright, a beautiful air of life within him. Mary was near 11 at the time and invited Martin to just go play with her. The pair left, met up with Nora, and headed towards an area called Rat Alley. Rat Alley was just like a condemned portion of the slums. Uh, demolition was just really slow, so kids would just go play in abandoned buildings in the wreckage. I'm pretty sure there's a Rat Alley in River Falls. <laughs> <laughs> I want to make so many jokes right now that oh nobody would gosh. understand. I, I, well, I mean, I, I've only been to River Falls once, but I understand <laughs> A lot of rap people. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Norma, Mary, and little Martin Brown headed for one of the many abandoned buildings. However, as they started up the stairs, Martin hesitated. You see, this young boy, Martin, he'd fallen down the stairs as a kid and was traumatized. He hated them. He wouldn't go near them. He'd never climb them. But with some encouragement, the girls were able to bring him up the steps. The space was generally abandoned, just like all the other buildings. The difference being, this one had scattered tablets and empty pill bottles all over the place. It was strange, but not really unusual, and a decent distraction for Martin. Mary quickly overpowered him. 
Being over twice his age, he plugged his nose and strangled him there on the floor till his body stilled beneath her. Though the boy fought, he was really no match for a girl seven years older than him. And he passed. Jesus. Now, there's some speculation as to whether or not Norma helped or was even there. Some reports say that it was just Mary, and then she went to go get Norma to show off. Um, Other reports say Norma was definitely there helping. It's just, they never admitted to anything in this case. So, unfortunately, we'll never know for sure. It didn't really take long before the two, if they were there, excitedly left the scene. They were known to laugh and joke about murdering other kids and just making a whole game of it. And so they ran off to kind of boast about it to the other locals. But nobody paid attention to them. So instead, they wanted to kind of go back and look at the body again because it's a dead body and it fascinated them. But when they returned to the scene, it was crowded. Two local boys had found the body, and many workers in the area had already rushed there. Martin's mother arrived shortly after the crowd began to gather, and just as one of the workers carried the boy out. He was cold and blue and still. The ambulance arrived and rushed him to the hospital, but of course it was way too late. He was pronounced dead upon arrival. Four-year-old boy. Jesus. Investigation was pursued, but with little to go on, there were no signs of bruising or foul play because she's a kid. That's not a lot of pressure. Yeah. The obvious culprit being the scatterings of narcotics spread about the room. It seemed like just a tragic accident, a boy falling victim to the horrors of Rat Alley. One of the main things they were thinking was he died of fright just because of the stairs, but his mom denied that till the day that it was discovered he was murdered because there was no way martin would go up a staircase alone no way but you know that's just kind of what the newspapers ran on and because of this a lot of the public began to really hate rat alley and the uh demolitions picked up again there were some protests in this area, and Mary, <laughs> there are pictures of her protesting the demolitions, like holding up signs and stuff. As, oh my god. Yeah, it's bonkers. Just like as a little side gig. Does she not have school? Like, does she not have to be somewhere? <laughs> like, just running around like nothing. All these kids are. Doesn't have to go home for dinner. Not sitting on her iPad 24-7. <laughs> Whew. So, Mary and Norma were not satisfied with the attention at all, because obviously this was just some freak accident to everyone else. So, late one night, they snuck out. Peeling off the tiles of a slate roof, they slipped into a local nursery. It was empty, and they vandalized the place, upturning desks, tearing books, smearing ink and paint all over the walls, and finally, they left their notes upon four sheets of paper. Hard to decipher, full of spelling errors. The sheets read the following phrases that I will try to read to the best of my ability. (laughs) I murder so that I may come back. We did murder Martine Brown. Fuck of you bastard. (laughs) Oh, they're very good at spelling. Mm -hmm. Fudge off, we murder. Watch out, Fanny and Faggot. Oh, Jesus. And the last one, the most complicated and most difficult to read. (laughs) You are mice. Why? The letter Y. Be curse. We murdered Martine Go Brown. You bet. (laughs) B-E-T-E. Look out. There, in all caps, are murders about. 
by Fanny and Old Faggot, you screws. Oh my god. I know. And they're like 11 and 13. I hope they're talking about cigarettes. That seems a little extreme. It, it, it shocked me when I read these papers. They're kids. Like, go back to school. <laughs> <laughs> you at least, like, I hated school, too. You at least need to know how to write. Well, the thing is, um, there are some copies of, like, school journals that Mary had. Her handwriting is really good, and her spelling is pretty decent, too. So when I looked at this and I looked at those four pages, it kind of looked more like Norma's handwriting that than would, Mary's. That would make more sense if things were, um, <laughs> if she had a mental handicap yeah. as well. Yeah. Uh, so that was strange. And once the scene was reported to the police, they ended up just kind of blaming it on some tasteless prank and vandalism and left it alone. Because that's Scotswood for you. Just bulldoze it. Yay, bulldoze it. Four days after the murder and shortly before Martin's funeral, both girls made their way to the Brown home. There they asked to see Martin, to which the mother replied in the best of her ability, you know, he's, he's passed away, and she did her best to kind of explain death to these little kids. And What a bitch. After this, Mary just shook her head and replied, oh, I know he's dead. I want to see him in his coffin. She's terrible. Mm-hmm. The mother just had no words and shut the door on them. Like, what do you say? That <laughs> your kid's dead and another kid is like, oh, I know he's dead. I just want to see him. I want to see him dead. I, I don't know if I would have shut the door. I may have said some things. <laughs> I think I would have like chased them with a pitchfork. <laughs> I need to get one of those. Specifically to chase kids away. <laughs> <laughs> You're not getting any candy from me this Halloween, you fucks. <laughs> so much trauma. So much trauma. But we're just getting started. There's more. How are we just getting started? How, what? <laughs> is she still alive today? Yes. Oh. She is. Shit. Mm-hmm. The demolition of Rat Alley was in full swing now that a boy was found dead, outraged by the public and all that. It was a great entertainment for all the kids. Granted, I would totally be there. I would have watched that demolition. That would have been so fun. I, my mom no. would not have let me do that. They don't have to know. No, 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 no. <laughs> That's not how it works growing up. <laughs> I had to be home by five every day. Oh. I was always grounded for bad grades. Oh. School's not my thing. It's okay. You we- can tell by my scripts that I write. <laughs> Did you see the new way that they cheat, which is, like, fucking genius? What? They have long fingernails, like, at fake nails, and they'll put all the answers in the <gasps> nail. What? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Super smart. I just Like, if you're that it. smart, why are you cheating? But, like, you don't need to. <laughs> you should probably just study, but fuck. I didn't know the concept of studying till I got to college. I mean, I mostly just drank, so... In, in my defense, in my defense, all of my assignments were writing assignments, so... That sounds terrible. That's why I can write for days. Yeah, I can't, <laughs> obviously. I just get really wordy, because I need to extend my paper. <laughs> I'm just like, let's find this random fact from Russia. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, houses are falling, kids like to watch that. It's so fun. So fun. <laughs> Brian Howe, a three-year-old, was one of the many watching all of these houses get torn down. Why is a three-year-old there? Look, you're in the slums. 
all these kids, two and up, just kind of go out to play. You can walk, baby. You can talk. You can watch a building <laughs> fall. Literally. No, no, no. I'm like, the parents would eventually, when it was dinner time, go out and find their kid. I, I don't even know the concept of that. How do you find them? <laughs> I'd, uh, I'd, I don't know. It worked. Except for not in all the cases, apparently. Dun, dun, dun. Because they died. Because they're dead. Cause, I mean, I understand they that. Were <laughs> they're in a coffin. <laughs> no. So, Mary and Norma, out doing their normal mischief, found Brian just kind of watching everything go down. And they were like, hey, you want to come play with us? We're going to go play at the Tin Lizzie. The Tin Lizzie is this expanse of wasteland where essentially they just dump extra bricks and debris and stuff. And kids love to play with that. I mean, I would have. That sounds friggin' bomb. You could build your own castle. Exactly. It was the best. So Norma, Mary, and Brian all went off to kind of go play around all the bricks and stuff. They were still 11 and 13. This is only like a couple months after Martin's death. So suddenly Mary turns to Brian between all the piles of stone and brick and she goes, you have a sore throat. And he's three. And he goes, oh, okay. And she goes, let me help you make it feel better. Jesus. And so Mary starts to massage his throat. This is like what I say to men when they want something. I'm like, I'm sorry, my throat hurts too much. <laughs> I have a headache. I'm going to go home now. <laughs> you don't want to know what's going on down there. <laughs> so, Mary began to strangle him. She slowly increased her pressure around his throat till he was gasping and fighting her. Norma helped hold him down till he fell unconscious. But he wasn't dead yet. It takes a lot to strangle. It does. I don't think people, like kids, an 11-year-old cannot comprehend that. I know. I know. But, ugh, we'll just, I'm just going to get into it. With him down and stunned, Mary took out a pair of broken scissors. She began to stab his legs repeatedly. She cut and snipped at his hair, tossing it here and there. And then finally, she removed his pants and mutilated his penis. Obviously, this woke Brian. At least he doesn't know how important that is going to be for him later in life (laughs) at this point. It's true. But I'm assuming he dies. Yeah. 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 So upon waking up, Mary and Norma both pounce on him, holding him down and finishing the job. One hand on his nose, one on his throat. Mary strangles him to death. That sounds terrible. Yeah. And it gets worse. I just, I don't even, I mean, I see how it could get worse, but Jesus. (laughs) So Mary and Norma stand back to kind of admire their work, but something is missing. So Mary reaches into her pocket and pulls out a razor blade. She lifts up his shirt and carves the letter M into his stomach for Mary. You know, she's not very smart for being (laughs) smart. I know. She's just ready to get caught. Well, she's telling everybody, too. Like, she would boast about killing Martin at school, but nobody would believe her because she talked about that crap all the time. Well, I don't. People are such poor listeners. (laughs) 
So, finally, they tossed the scissors, tossed the blade, and ran away giggling and laughing as if it was all some fun little joke. Because they're kids. Brian was in the Tin Lizzy for hours until about 11 p.m. when the police found his body. They clearly attempted-ish to hide the body. They ripped up some grass and some dirt and, like, tossed it on them, but clearly kind of gave up halfway before they left. So, it was pretty easy to find. He was cyanotic, bruised, and covered in scratch marks. They did find the pair of scissors broken at his feet, but the blade they couldn't find, nor did they know to find. It was more apparent in this one than in Martin. This kid had definitely been murdered. And for murder. (laughs) (laughs) So we jump into the autopsy now. Oh, no. Of this three-year-old child. The wounds on the body were really superficial, which was weird for all the stabs. Both that and the signs of strangulation had very light bruising compared to what an adult would do, which made it very clear to the specialists that this was done by a child. How horrific is that conclusion? Like, you're just working on your normal job, a three-year-old body comes in and it's mutilated, and you know it's a kid that did it. That is so hard. Can you imagine the officer that has to knock on the doors and like, ma'am, I need to talk to your child. Like, there's a child murderer on the loose. And all the adults are like, what the fuck? <laughs> now, this is actually really interesting how they handled this. So the police, knowing it's a kid that did this, decided the best way to track them down is to just kind of submit a giant seminar to all the kids in Scottswood District. Just a little questionnaire that they would like do with their parents from ages 5 to 14, I believe, was their target range. And so they then would just review the questionnaires and any suspicious or weird answers to the murders, to just the general area, they would investigate. And lo and behold, Mary and Norma's were by far the most suspicious. That's quite the idea. Yeah. So Mary clammed up immediately. She avoided answering questions, talked in circles, and just generally confused the questioners. (laughs) All in all, she was skillfully able to dodge anything incriminating, leaving the detectives with little to nothing to go on. But she was the mastermind. Norma was a very different story. Detectives received a call from Norma's family, informing them that Norma had something to confess. Upon arrival, Norma told them, that Mary came to get her one day to play. The day she killed Brian. She said that Mary had been the sole perpetrator and had shown Norma the body just to brag about it. The officers brought her to the crime scene where, in shocking detail, she showed and described everything that went down. She even got the, bl- the razor blade that was missing. So, Mary Bell, obviously, was next. However, lo and behold, Daddy was finally home. Mr. Bell, Billy Bell. And he did not want these detectives to question his daughter. And so he threatened them with a dog that they had, which I couldn't find the breed for. But I'm assuming it was a big dog, not a chihuahua. (laughs) Yeah, probably not. Yeah. And so the detectives are like, look, dude, we got to talk to your daughter. And if you don't, like, stop this, we're going to have to arrest you. So stop. Like, you haven't been there for your daughter before. (laughs) I don't know why you would do anything now. Freaking cops on my lawn. (laughs) 
<laughs> in his mind, he was like, Trump 2024. <laughs> in 1986. <laughs> he was really looking ahead. <laughs> Not that we need to get political, but... No, we, we know where we stand. <laughs> So, finally, they were able to talk to Mary. Um, It did take another day. But again, she was incredibly defensive and evasive of all of their questions. And she even said, you're trying to brainwash me. I will get a solicitor, which is a lawyer, to get me out of this. Mary said that, that whole sentence. And then that was basically all they got from her. And this is before true crime documentaries. Yeah. The only reason I know how to do anything is because of watching all of the thousands of documentaries I've watched. Oh my gosh. I mean, I suppose you only need to watch one to be like, yeah, I need a lawyer, thanks. I don't think they even had a TV. (laughs) They had a lot of buildings to watch. There were plenty of TVs around. No, I mean in the slums. There's always plenty of TVs. I'm trying to think of where I know that stereotype from so I can pin it down and then, like, remove the stereotype from my brain. But I don't know where it came from. <laughs> well, I'll explain The Simpsons. That sounds like a good plan. I didn't watch The Symptom, Sim- Simpsons. Simpsons. Symptoms. I wasn't allowed to watch them. I did it in college, though. You rebel. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't allowed to watch a lot of things. We had a weirdly sheltered life. We were allowed to watch the show called uh, Wizards of Waverly Place, like on Disney Channel. Yeah. But when we started playing witches, then we weren't allowed to watch it anymore. Because my brothers tattled on us. We were pretending to play witches in the living room. And I remember this very well. From 2024. (laughs) We need a coven. I want to be in a coven. That's all I've ever wanted. (laughs) I'm not praying to a god, but I want to be in a coven. Hold on. I've watched American Horror Story. I know how this goes down. We're not doing that. (laughs) Covens are supposed to be good. It's like white magic and shit. White magic? It's not black magic. Isn't it white magic? Don't be racist. Oh my gosh. (laughs) The moral of my story is I would like to be a part of a coven. Shout out to anyone who's in a coven in the Twin City area. Hit us up. (laughs) I will sage the shit out of my house. I have a murder to talk about. So with nothing to go on, because they can't pin Mary on anything because she's not talking, they did go back to Norma and received her official statement, in which she essentially was like, okay, just kidding, I actually did help a lot with the whole murder thing. So things began to kind of line up and discoveries were being made. So there were fibers of clothing found both at Martin's crime scene and at Brian's, all of which matched Mary, and at Martin's, some of those fibers matched some of Norma's clothing. I mean, at least the cops are finally doing something. I know. This is like every episode. (laughs) Hey, the cops actually came into play now. (laughs) It only took two murders. Two murders. Two murders. Two of child murders. From an 11-year-old. Uh, so they had two very important damning pieces of evidence. The first uh, was for Brian's case. A boy, nine years old, with a mental age of four, saw the whole damn thing, the whole thing in detail, and was able to describe it more or less to police. Norma and Mary killing Brian in the Tin Lizzie. Jesus. Mm-hmm. But then there was evidence for Martin's case, too. Because while all this was coming out, one of Mary's teachers decided to kind of look through all of her journals and see what he could find. 
in one of her journals, he saw that the day of Martin's death, Mary wrote about how she arrived during the whole crowded scene and drew a picture at the bottom of her little journal notes, which is really pretty cursive, by the way. I do have to mention, for an 11-year-old, we do not do cursive nowadays. My cursive is mediocre at best. Oh, mine's pretty good. I must be, and I'm good at murders. <laughs> good for you. <laughs> so the drawing that she drew was of Martin laying dead with a little circle and the words tablet and an arrow pointing at the circle, as well as a worker just kind of standing there finding the body. Now, the thing about this is they never released that tablets were found at the scene of the crime for Martin. Rather, they focused on the died of fright angle. Wait, I'm so confused. We're not talking about Apple tablets or like... No, 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 we're not. Yeah, obviously, but like what? (laughs) Like medicine tablets. Gotcha. They okay. found, yeah, yeah, the narcotic stuff. Gotcha. Oh, okay. The good kush. The good. <laughs> <laughs> this is when you could get cocaine. <laughs> yeah, nobody. That was a secret that the detectives kept to themselves was about all the medicine that was found there. So that was kind of, huh? How does this kid know about that? So, finally, with all this evidence, they were able to take both of the girls to court. But it's an 11-year-old and a 13-year-old being tried for murder in an adult case. So, some exceptions would have to be made. One of the main ones was that the defendants, both those girls, were able to consistently talk with their solicitors throughout the case. Because if they had questions or they needed an explanation, they had someone there. And because of that, Mary and her solicitor became very close in a sense. Um, She was just a very intelligent little girl in general. And despite the murders, she was still just a little girl. That's all he could really see, which is kind of sad. Yeah. Because, yeah. Uh, The other thing is they just generally kind of kept things as light as possible, treaded very carefully, were very lenient with the girls in general. Even the media just kind of kept things hush-hush about the case. They didn't blow it up like, child murder, blah, blah, blah. They showed a lot of sympathy towards both of the girls and the victims, but more the girls. This is weird. I know. This is not what would happen today. No. It's just because nobody could figure out. This is the first of its... time nobody could figure out how could kids kill kids so in an uh, outcry sense it was more just how the hell could this have happened so as the trial took place each girl had to be psychologically evaluated by a child psychologist the psychologist who examined mary noted that she just seemed generally fidgety and couldn't relax she was generally a tough kid heavy in her denial of murdering any of the victims. She just didn't seem to be fully aware of what was happening to her or what would happen if she was sentenced. She was smart, though. The psychologist found her responses to be really sophisticated. One investigator found her to be answering his questions before he even finished asking them and even moving on to the next before he said a word. So she was very intelligent. With all this, however, it was concluded that she, at the time, was a psychopath with an inability to feel emotions. That kind of sounds about right. Yeah. Though I think technically that's a sociopath. 
I think it's a sociopath. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Norma just seemed scared. She was hardly capable of masterminding such such a thing. Rather, she seemed to just be a general friend of Mary um, and just liked to kind of boast and play around. Just a kid. Both Norma and Mary claimed their innocence, however, while pushing that the other had actually done the killing, which sounds very adult. That's a lot of, that's very common. Yeah. On the stand, Mary was calm and collected. She was sharp tossing around witty remarks and seemed impervious to the many questions they asked. The only time she broke down and cried was when a prosecutor accused her of strangling or killing a pigeon. And then they had to stop the trial entirely because she couldn't calm down. Did she actually strangle the pigeon? I don't think so. Oh. Yeah. I don't know where that came from. (laughs) That's weird. I know. It's a pigeon. I know. I mean, every life is very important, but it's a pigeon. (laughs) (laughs) She killed two kids, but she's crying about a pigeon. Yeah. I know. Hmm. Very unusual for killers, too. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Norma was incredibly shy and weak to it all. She broke down easily and consistently and seemed super insecure and simply, quote unquote, not as bright. Because of this and the grounds of she was just obviously manipulated by Mary as a friend, Norma was acquitted of all of her charges. Mary, on the other hand, was found guilty of manslaughter. She was in such a state of shock at the sentence that she started crying. And her lawyer, I mean, she's a freaking kid. She's 11 years old. He he comforted her. Because what do you do? I mean, she's a murderer. I probably wouldn't comfort her. I feel like, "Mm, get those dirty murder fingers off me. Oh my god! But you're not wrong. She's a free. She killed two kids. So a new problem kind of came up with this, though, because she was convicted. But now they're like, what the hell are we going to do with an 11 year old? Yeah, they'd never seen this before. She was to be detained, quote unquote, at Her Majesty's pleasure. So indefinitely or until they wanted to let her go. They finally ended up sending her to a secure school called Red Bank where she was raised primarily with boys, and then her. That doesn't seem right. (laughs) But it was like a, it was a, like, juvenile, delinquent-esque school, so they could keep an eye on her, but also, the main thing was so that they could show her the love that she never had. Like, they really pushed to that. Red Bank was a wonderful place for her. Okay. They were kind, they pushed her with her education, and they just kind of showed her the love she never had. And this was something that her society, like, loved. Everyone around the area, the public, the media blew up about the story hoping that this girl could recover from the trauma that she experienced. There was a lot of sympathy in the case towards her. I just don't have any sympathy, but (laughs) that's just me, I guess. It it is really weird. Like, my mind on this case flip-flopped so many different times because she was 11 and she went through trauma and it's all she saw, but she killed two kids. But at the same time, I think they handled this really well because she, as she grew up, became a much smarter but also kinder girl. She finished her education. She got great marks on everything. She did end up going to prison after 
finishing school, which is good. She needed to do that. It's just so different from what we do in the U.S. It really is. Like, juvie is not, you do not want to go there. You are not loved there. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. You know, and oh, that's what makes me so mad about uh, prisons in general. Not just in America, because this happens a lot. But she needed this to become a part of society. Yeah. If she didn't get this, then she'd, she'd murder again. Yeah. Like, I'm so frustrated with the situation because here we're, we're just like, yeah. uh, bitch, you need to go to jail. Like, Bye. we're going to throw you away. Like, see you later. Mm-hmm. We're not going to... We don't want to deal with you anymore. We're gonna- except for to, like, tell you in our podcasts about... <laughs> That's the only thing you're good for now. Now you're going to be sitting in the dark forever. And maybe we'll let you out like when you're 40 because, you know, you're 40 now. Maybe you won't do anything, even though you've just been through the worst trauma of your life for about 30 years. And then you kill again. Also, here's a computer. Good luck. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I hate it so much. (laughs) So the public watched her closely as she grew up through all this. Not in fear, but... They all just kind of grew attached to her, and the blame stopped falling on her entirely. She just became a victim of Rat Alley, of her mother, of all the circumstances, and the public would not see her in any other light. It was really interesting. But she's still, is she still getting diagnosed as a sociopath? That I don't know. Oh. I don't know. I mean, it's her business at this point. It is. And uh, that's one of the most frustrating parts about this case, but we'll get to that. So one of the things is while she was still in school, her mom, Betty, did visit her pretty frequently, but it was obvious their relationship was strained at best. She eventually, Mary, eventually wrote a letter to Betty, but this is where my sympathy kind of loses its grip with Mary because the whole time the letter was just denying any responsibility and pushing it all on Betty and being like, you need to go to the public and say it was your fault and blah, 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 and all this stuff. Even through all of her imprisonment and her schooling, never once did she ever confess to ever doing anything and consistently denied ever killing anybody. I personally don't think that shows any kind of change. But did she ever murder again? We don't know. So she was incarcerated for 12 years after she graduated. So at 23, she was finally released and granted full anonymity. Full anonymity. Um, At first, it was just for a little bit. But later in life, she was granted anonymity to her, her children, and her grandchildren. Her name was changed, and she was wiped off of everything. That's insane. The only thing we know about her now is that she's a grandmother. Would you ever tell your children what happened? I was thinking this. How? I don't know if I could live with that guilt. I, yeah. Like, especially if you never confessed to it or admitted that you killed kids. And the parents of the kids that were murdered, like, imagine how they must feel. There's an amazing documentary on this on YouTube. And it has interviews from the investigators involved, from Martin's mom, from Pauline. It was really fascinating to see everyone's perspective. But clearly, Martin's mom was so, her statements were really heartbreaking. That would be so terrible. Like, as, and then you watch the public, like, all show sympathy for this kid that killed your three-year-old or your four-year-old. Mm-hmm. Good gravy. So, that's, that's it now. 
that's literally the case. We don't know anything else. Except I, I do want to follow up on this because 25 years from this case, a very similar thing occurred. Child murder and all that. It is much worse than this case. So, and the response of the media is incredibly different. So I'm pretty excited, but we'll be covering that another time. Oh, goodness. Mm -hmm. I'm real excited. So there's video footage of it and all this stuff. So I'm prepared prepare for something completely messed up. Because apparently this case really fucked with people. I mean, that's a lot of our cases. It's true. Yeah. It's true. My brain is... <laughs> it's a storage locker for fucking trauma. <laughs> So that was a case of Mary Bell, the 11-year-old child murderer. What a case. I know, right? I was just right. Saying, what a bitch, but then I can't even really. I, I, it's, so, it's so weird to think about. I am so fascinated by the child murderer cases, and I, there's a couple I want to cover. The next one, obviously, but there's another one that I really liked, I think, Morbid covered. Okay. But I'll definitely be covering it later. Oh, Morbid does not like to do the child ones. No. Well, yeah. Oh, I mean, I can't blame her, but I don't yeah. have kids, so I'm fine. <laughs> I mean, mine is now eight, so she only has oh, three years until she can be a murderer. <laughs> Perfect. She'll be great murderer. <laughs> no, she won't. <laughs> She'll use her iPad. <laughs> She'll kill on Roblox. <laughs> I'm going to take all your Roblox money. <laughs> Stick it to the big man. On I Roblox. tell her that all the time. <laughs> I'm not surprised. Well, that's our show today. <laughs> Thank you guys so much for listening. We love you all so much, as always. And we do want to talk to you, especially about this. I want to know what you guys think. What's your opinion on Mary Bell and the whole case in general? How it was handled by the public, by the police, by the parents? Just give me all that. I agree. I mean, I also want to hear. Yeah. My mind is just still a little blown. Yeah. Good. I feel so proud right now. <laughs> It wasn't the case I was expecting. I'm, I'm very glad to blow, blow your expectations out of the water. Thank Yay. you. Good day. Uh, you can follow us on Facebook. At High Time Star Crimes. We're kind of on Twitter, but I'm kind of lazy about it. <laughs> At HTDC underscore podcast. Uh, if you really want to get a hold of us, you can uh, email us at HighTimeStarCrimes at gmail.com. Uh, we're on TikTok. At High Time Star Crimes. And we love it if you'd pay us on <laughs> Patreon. Please. So become a patron. Yes, because we do have a Patreon episode coming up here for you. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. What the fuck, Alexander? <laughs> <laughs> it's good stuff. High Time Star Crimes. Bye.